I'm Richard Serrett. Join me on Strange Planet for in-depth conversations with the world's top paranormal investigators, alien abductees, Bigfoot trackers, monster hunters, time travelers, and more. The handler one day told her this whole thing about how they've been terraforming on Mars, and they're building a colony, and they're recruiting specific people of specific bloodlines and specific talents and skill sets to go onto the planet. On Richard Serrett's Strange Planet, we're redefining reality. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary, void, or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Today's guest on Around the Coin is Alex Behar. He is the Chief Information Officer at ZotaPay. He is also a visiting lecturer, teacher on cyber defense and crisis management at the University of National and World Economy. He is incredibly knowledgeable when it comes to cryptocurrencies and cybersecurity. And we talked a bit about the intersection of crypto and global payments particularly in parts of the world that are up and coming, how Visa MasterCard networks are up against the wall in different parts of the world and what the shift in payments is going to look like over the coming years with crypto. Hope you enjoy this conversation. Here is Alex Behar. Alex, I, I love your your intro. We are talking pre-show about head of the geeks at Zotapay. Um Maybe to kick it off, would you tell me a little bit about what the business does at ZotaPay and sort of where your headspace is over the last few years? Yes, uh, thank you, Mike, for having me. So, so uh, ZotaPay is um, a, a payments marketplace, a global payment marketplace, uh, enable merchants to access uh, nearly six billion people on the planet in over sixty countries worldwide in various currencies and jurisdictions. Uh, Zota mainly caters to enterprise and mid-sized uh, clients that are actually sophisticated and operate uh, businesses in, in uh, as multiple countries, dozens uh, uh, from time to time. And we allow them to uh, effectively uh, bi-directionally access nearly 1,200 various uh, um, uh, payment endpoints and payment methods in various jurisdictions around the globe. Mm. And so when you think about cybersecurity as somebody who does, what is that, what comes to mind? Like what are the big parts of cybersecurity and what is cybersecurity? So, I mean, to me, I'm, I'm a, uh, a guy with sort of a payments uh, hammer in, in my hand. So, so of course, I, I want to make sure that, that um, the world of payments of, of is able to conduct more securely and, and there's less fraud and, and other things that have plagued the industry. And I'll give an example. Uh, uh, some of the initial issues that, that customers complained of uh, since the very beginning of credit cards in the 50s and 60s has been fraud. This is actually a constant thing. So that hasn't changed. Uh, ever since, and, and this all 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 of that risk is effectively transferred uh, on us as customers here in in the Western world, where uh, we use uh, cards for for a large number of our uh, transactions, either via the internet or, or physically in person. Um, so so that that has been the security of this card information has been something that uh, it has been an issue since the very dawn of the industry. I 
I feel so. So the 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 way the uh, credit card is designed is actually one of your oldest pieces of technology that you physically own. If you think about it, nothing else has a magnetic you know strip that you you know can go and swipe uh, in a terminal. Uh, uh, so so that's that's uh, uh, so the legacy uh, baggage that that comes with the credit card industry. And, and one of the issues there is uh, uh, is of course the cybersecurity and fraud rate. We've heard all of us about major breaches where uh, millions and millions of card numbers are copied and then they are useful then to be able to uh, buy illicit uh, wares or, or conduct fraudulent transactions uh, with them online. Um, so one of the, one of the uh, alternatives actually, and, and uh, as they are actually called alternative payment methods, uh, is, is uh, what really is proliferating all around the world. So the uh, 2022 uh, FIS Global Payments Report um, noted that in, in a lot of the emerging markets, the penetration rate of Visa and MasterCard is under 20%. Uh, and there are several reasons for it. Uh, uh, a bunch that, that I can uh, see firsthand by by uh, observing it in, in uh, locally and in, in various with various merchants there, and uh, and just traveling and, and buying uh, stuff at markets and talking to people uh, is the fact that participating in the Visa and Mastercard ecosystem is actually uh, expensive. Right? Any credit card related device is is an expensive ordeal. <clears throat> It, uh, uh, the, the, the card itself, there's a certain amount of, of cost associated with it, but also the, the post terminal itself is not, a, uh, uh, is not cheap. Uh, it's a device that has to be certified, has to be secured. So this exact point where uh, the card meets the post terminal is, is uh, expensive to run for merchants who, for example, an Indonesian um, uh, uh, seller of, of fish, for example, uh, would uh, prefer to, to use his 25 or her 25 uh, dollar uh, Android device uh, to conduct the transaction instead of having to buy hundreds of dollars worth of a post terminal to use uh, for only people that carry post terminal. So, uh, in vast areas of the world and, and nearly six billion people, so there's three billion uh, uh, credit cards issued to about 1.5 billion unique individuals. So, nearly six billion people out there still conduct transactions digitally and online. Uh, they just don't do it via uh, traditional payment methods. So Zotepay effect effectively focuses on the alternative payment world, being able to reach bi-directionally uh, uh, everyone on the planet, uh, especially those who do not have uh, a credit card. So, so I, I yeah, hope that's... Yeah, so what do you think of the general trends that's happening in the world, say outside the U.S. in particular? There's, I almost think there's some, tell me where you would push back on this, but there's a leapfrogging that's happening where distribution of actual physical cards is not happening at the same rate that it did in the U.S. because during the card distribution era of the 80s and 90s and early 2000s, there wasn't the smartphone technology to handle payments through your phone. Now that that exists, there's just a far lower incentive for people in Africa, Southeast Asia, areas that haven't had those physical cards or the merchants haven't had the terminals, that network hasn't been built. There's just, not, people don't want that, right? They, they, would, they would just rather use their phone. So are you basically saying that, that Visa, MasterCard are not distributing physical cards and instead they're like integrating with the apple pays or samsung pays of the world and and they'll still have a successful network business visa mastercard will through just purely digital distribution of card numbers or do you think this plays out in some different way entirely it's it's the the, the majority of people so at least 80 percent of people in in outside of the oecd nations uh do not have a visa or mastercard product so whether it's a card, debit, or, or anything of the sort. 
So that, that actually uh, creates a, a world where uh, uh, Visa and MasterCard effectively the ability to address with credit card, through credit card uh, schemes, uh, uh, the world are, are not very large because the entry level of, of, I mean, there's a few unlocks that happen if you think about it with uh, the invent of uh, the invention of the mobile phone and, and, and it, it's, it becoming so widely accessible because of the cost curve uh, of it falling. Right, it allowed uh, a, a small device, a small computing device that has a display that is constantly internet connected, uh, that, that has a camera. So all of these things, when put together, effectively uh, make make the uh, the card ecosystem obsolete in and of itself. The physical plastic part of it, because you always have a constantly connected device. The other entity has, has the ability to uh, potentially even issue you a QR code or any NFC kind of uh, uh, payment mechanism, such as Apple Pay. Uh, and others. So the, 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 the way the payments are conducted outside of, of sort of Europe, the US, uh, Japan, and then a few other places in the world uh, are more oriented toward this, this uh, payment forms of peer-to-peer -peer, um, and alternative payment methods. A way to think about this in, in sort of uh, our US con context um, is, is uh, the way Venmo or, or, uh, would compete with, uh, with Visa, for example, right? It's mm. an alternative payment method even though it's connected and, and let's assume for a second that it's an entirely alternative uh, payment method, then you can be a Venmo customer and not be a, a Visa customer for the sake of the argument. This exists all around the world. I mean, there are super apps uh, out there and, and we start hearing about this more and more in, in, in uh, English Western media, but that has been the case for, for at least five to seven years in a lot of countries out there where uh, a single uh, entities doing payment processing and, and other uh, lending services and, and other things. So, so that, that yeah. really is a non-addressed market for, I guess, the card to duopoly, if I, if I may call it. If you own crypto and leave it on the exchange where you bought it, like Coinbase, that is a mistake. We've heard the news lately. Exchanges closed, accounts frozen. We're learning the hard way that crypto on exchanges is not really in your control. So what can you do about it? Well, you can get a crypto wallet and control the crypto yourself. And that's why today's show is sponsored by Zengo. These guys realize that storing Bitcoin and storing crypto yourself can be difficult. It's risky to keep private keys. They realized this and said there's got to be a better way. So they created a crypto wallet that is fully recoverable. So say goodbye to lost Bitcoins. And the security of this wallet is incredible. It's a hacker's worst nightmare. They use a three-factor authentication, including 3D biometrics, so no one can access your wallet except for you. And Zengo realizes that at different levels of the crypto journey, you have different needs. So they offer 27 support and have real people that are available to contact directly within the app. They have a bunch of different coins, Bitcoin, Ethereum, Tezos, and more, and they have all sorts of NFTs available as well. So now for the first time, you can keep your crypto safe with the same tools that the big guys have used for years. Download Zengo, that's Z-E-N-G-O, and use code ATC to get $20 back on your first purchase of $200 or more. That's $20 back for your first purchase of $200 or more. Use code ATC and check out Zengo. That's right. Yeah, so do you, do you kind of synthesize that that reality as the idea of a monthly credit card or monthly credit line kind of becoming obsolete as a thing of the past like why why do people even use credit cards today is it it feels like a little bit of this uh 
circular reward system where I use a credit card not because I need the credit. I have plenty of cash to pay out my bill, but you know I'm not living month to month, but I would rather get the points. And so people use credit cards instead of debit cards or Venmo because of the points. Well, the points come from the merchants. The merchants pay a tax to the credit card companies. And so it's like basically a slight discount which means, the, by the way, we pay a tax to the credit card companies. Right. Well, it no, what, more, it doesn't mean more specifically that the people who it means, yes, you pay a tax, but the people who use a debit card or a peer to peer transaction at a merchant that also accepts credit cards, those are the people that are paying the biggest tax because they pay the tax for the people who use the credit cards who get the points. So it, yes. it seems like it, usually you, you don't go into a store and see two different prices. It's like you, you don't see like this is the price for credit card, this is the price for Venmo or cash. It's the same thing. So there's like a tax that's really out, outsized on people who are paying with debit or direct cash. Yeah, the, I, I guess the card companies, especially in the US and, and in, to, in Europe to an extent, uh, were able to build very successful modes. Um, around their business model by by forbidding merchants, amongst other things, mm. advertising uh, the price without the transaction versus the price with transaction cost of various items. But uh, it, it has, it, the, uh, let me just try to break this down into a few pieces. One is the plastic uh, part, the, the, effectively the payment uh, uh, instrument uh, of the card itself, whether it's a debit or a credit is irrelevant. Uh, and the other is is the financial service that is attached to it, which uh, uh, is the credit aspect of it, the credit line aspect. Of it. And there is no reason why an alternative payment method would not have a credit line aspect to it. Why wouldn't uh, a, a local lender uh, lend a small merchant, say, send Fisher uh, to purchase a, a new a fishing boat for her family or, or maybe a factory, create a factory for, for their products and lend against their cash flow? Uh, future cash flow in order to be able to to expand their business, right? So there's plenty of of lending and micro lending uh, ecosystems that have spurred out there, uh, to the extent where where Western banks, as we know them and as we use them, uh, uh, look nothing like the uh, some local alternatives, especially in in, in Africa and central parts of Africa. But wouldn't wouldn't isn't that idea a little bit backwards in the sense that when I use a credit card as a consumer, I'm getting paid for taking out credit. You know, I, at the end of the month, I pay off the bill and assuming I pay off the bill and I had that 30 days of, of credit, they're paying me for having that credit. Whereas a typical credit line, I pay the bank or I pay whoever is lending me money. So the incentives are kind of backwards for people who are using credit cards today, as opposed to people who are taking micro loans out for business purchases elsewhere. So it's a, it's a very interesting <clears throat> point. Um, it is a it is a very interesting point. I I actually want to say one thing that is uh, uh, fairly uh, certain, sort of an axiom, and that is the fact that that neither the credit card providers nor uh, any of the folks in in the entire value chain are actually subsidizing your use to an extent. Right? There's also there's always a value transfer somewhere, um, and it it at the end of the day, uh, there's industry standard pricing of of especially in the card ecosystem and. There's very little wiggle room to compete also because of the pricing being uh, just so, uh, uh, I guess, uh, ubiquitous to so many players that uh, compete in the card space. Uh, and that actually puts the pricing effectively pretty much the same across uh, everyone. So, so from that perspective, I think uh, the price discovery uh, works between clients and, and the card providers.
Just let me make sure I understand you correctly. So the clients and the card providers. So you're saying that because there's so much competition and commoditization, that the 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 points that people that consumers are getting for using credit cards is about the same, like one and a half to two and a half percent. Whereas maybe that's also true for the lenders, but it's still I still wonder like if if there's this on some purchases getting... on some purchases the points are less than others. Like if you look for example the airline uh, cards working. I'm 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 not an expert on on the reward programs of uh, US card mm. uh, assistance. I, I spent the majority of my life in in Israel and Europe, but uh, uh, effectively it's uh, uh, it's an acquisition cost. It could be thought of as an acquisition cost by whoever provides the card. I mean, if they provide you better rewards for flying an airline or purchasing from a certain store, uh, at the end uh, it's a positive return uh, exercise for them. So it almost seems like there's a a-B test going on. On one part of the world, you have this kind of circular coupon reward system where you, where the, the network itself, the Visa MasterCard, require that the merchants don't have multiple pricing options. So the people who are using the credit cards are benefiting, they're getting the points back, and that's kind of exciting. People think about points, they like to use credit cards for the points. And then on the other side, you have peer-to-peer -peer transactions where merchants are not accepting credit cards. And so the prices are gonna be two to 3% lower because they don't have that transaction fee through the payment process. Do you see one of these methods as being more successful in the long run? Like, are, do we kind of converge? I mean, I would think that people would just want cheaper items instead of having this, you know, this game of like a monthly credit card and then you, you get points, but they're not really money. They're like points that you can only spend on hotels. I, but, but is that what gets played out in the numbers? So I, I guess one of the, the, the biggest uh, tailwinds to the card uh, industry around the world also is, is the support for mobile payments such as Apple Pay and, and Google and so on. But, but merchants themselves also, uh, especially ones that, that, can do, that uh, produce content or, or applications or games or, or any digital, any part of the digital economy, and, and have uh, uh, assets on, on, on these app stores, they would like to address the non-card, which is up to 6 billion people in the world, effectively, the non-card uh, uh, ecosystem. And it's very difficult to do this under the current uh, model for Apple Pay and, uh, and, and Google and so on, because they only support uh, either in some selected markets, uh, direct debit, but mostly uh, connecting with cards that are either Visa or Master, and also paying with them this way. Mm. Okay. So, so I mean, uh, there, there's yeah. a loss of going on and, and, and there's, there's a few challenges, uh, and from my understanding is still ongoing and, and, and highly, uh, highly disputed matter. Uh, but, uh, I, I, the, the general feeling and, and the way we're looking at, at this is, uh, that a lot of, uh, Western, uh, companies and, uh, in, in the U S and Europe specifically, not knowing how large the non-card payment world is. Uh, are, are maybe not monetizing. They're already strong brands uh, out there in, in, in the emerging markets. And do you think, it seems like Apple Pay and Samsung Pay are in a really unique position because they're kind of controlling the future or the current, but really the uh, more, ever more so the future of the, the bottleneck of, or the hardware component, the hardware software interface for payments. So people use their credit card, their credit card now is increasingly on their phone and the concept of a credit card will probably feel like a like a record or a CD or a cassette where it's like we have the little logo, you know, an MP3 logo on my computer might have a CD, but like 
you know, if you ask kids now, they don't know what a cassette is. Like, so this is going to become like a, a software digitally represented um, token where the credit card, physical card, I imagine, will have to become a relic of the past soon enough. And so you have this card on your phone, you swipe through it, like it looks like a bunch of cards, but really we're like, we're retrofitting the, the you know, the horse to the car. It's like, in reality, yeah, and having my... expiration dates, I and mean, there's right, right. several innovations that affect right. pin codes and 3D secure. And exactly, uh, you, know. you don't need that <laughs> stuff anymore. I mean, it'll probably be there for a while because it'll just be it, you want to be able to use your card everywhere you go, and so some place some merchants will be slow. But I imagine there ha like, why doesn't Apple have their own like payment? I guess they kind of do. Like, is Apple and Samsung's end goal, I guess Google, to try to own the payment flow? Like, are they viewing themselves as effectively wanting to disintermediate the credit card companies and own that, own the the payment network? Do you think? Uh, I, I I can only assume, uh, but uh, it, it definitely is a lucrative ecosystem for them, especially with the data and, and being able to launch other products on the back of it, even subsidize the cost of payments effectively, uh, which they're currently not doing, uh, but theoretically they could uh, in order to, to try to monetize uh, various other services around it. Uh, but mm. the, the demand for, for non-card uh, payments is clear already. I mean, uh, even some um, more modern iPhones and of course Android phone support uh, NFC uh, from from Visa and Mastercards already, and, and you're right. The, I, I also I also don't think that the, the the payment instrument of a plastic card is something that will continue to be around for for much much longer, uh, just because of of how uh, aware everyone of, of of using a cell phone is and uh, uh, and how much they understand the value. Mm, so even some car makers are already removing the car keys and putting them in a digital key. So I, I, I think that that's where uh, it's going. Everyone's uh, the, uh, phone is sort of the, the center of, of their universe pretty much. And, uh, and that allows uh, uh, also running a business from your phone and, and accepting payments and other things. Mm, interesting. Yeah, it seems like it's converging on a simpler solution in one sense where it's just digital. It's just one network. Uh, you know, unless and, and that's not to speak, by the way, of the challenge that 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 uh, digital assets and general crypto uh, currencies have to to traditional banking and, and traditional funds transfer. Um, yeah. Zota actually, we're a, a fairly large uh, user of, of uh, stable coins uh, as effectively a challenge to the Swift network for being too expensive, um, and the ability to to actually. Uh, conduct such treasury operations is, is something that many, many businesses are recognizing today. And uh, if you speak to some of the guys at Tether or, or Circle or other of the, uh, the big stable providers, you quickly are, are kind of seeing that, that there are large uh, players out there that effectively are using the digital asset space uh, as just means of moving vast amounts of value as a challenger to already existing payment infrastructure of, of the past. Interesting. And so when you say uh, the treasury, are they are these companies, or do you think a winning strategy is to, I, I think of uh, stable coins as, or the stable coin operators as they have a bank account somewhere, a traditional bank account, and they have money in that bank account. And the amount of money that they have in the bank account should line up with the amount of money in circulation one-to-one. -one. And USDC is one currency, I think that's outright and audited to make that claim, whereas Tether, I believe, uh, does not guarantee a one-to-one -one balance. So 
if you look at the graph, there seems to be a, a like a, a volume shift happening away from Tether towards USDC. And I think there was a lot of pressure on Tether during the the Terra Luna collapse of that stablecoin. But, you know, no one really knows how much money they have in the account, as far as I know. Now, I don't know if you have another uh, perspective on this, but how do you view these companies or how do you think the emergence of stablecoins or crypto in general starts to really meaningfully start to disrupt payment networks? So I, I guess the crypto could be thought of as, as, as something that is equally as disruptive over the long run uh, as, as, I guess, a mobile device, a mobile phone, a mobile computer, uh, really because it allows the, the, uh, 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 the ability to transfer uh, funds in a fairly uh, a cheap uh, manner and to, to create new assets and, and distribute them and, uh, and a bunch of other cool things that we haven't even thought of yet. Uh, quite honestly, in five years, the crypto space will look completely different than it does today. It did so five years ago already. Mm -hmm. um, so that that's sort of one thing that's certainly it's challenging uh, all kinds of industries, not just uh, uh, the payment instrument industry itself, but uh, all across the value chain of, of payments. Uh, and traditional finances, as it turns out. Uh, as far as the, the stablecoin providers, I mean, the Tether and, and uh, uh, and Circle, and I, I guess uh, Binance are, are the three largest. Uh, I, I cannot speak about the conf controversial matters around Tether. I, there's a bunch of stuff on the internet and uh, we'll let the viewers uh, and listeners actually do their, uh, sort of build their opinion uh, on that. But there's a lot of controversy around them and, and operating stablecoins is certainly not uh, an easy, uh, uh, financial challenge. Uh, the stablecoins operators, actually, if you if you go and read through their documentations and, and speak to their salespeople, you'll quickly understand that they have uh, access to vast uh, uh, payment uh, rails and the ability to to conduct payments in various currencies um, or SWIFT and SEPA and other payment networks all around the world. So effectively, if you're a large consumer of, of, of their services, you could uh, send them uh, um, sometimes uh, from, from the data that Circle actually posts out hundreds of, of millions of dollars per week, and they would actually disperse that in fiat uh, via SWIFT. So they effectively are, are able to, to do this on and off boarding at, uh, uh, or on and off ramping at a ridiculous uh, scale, with, which is their job in, in the industry. Um, All right, so Alex, one of the things I, I kind of am curious about here is what's the, how do we synthesize this? Like, how do we synthesize this into a worldview or a general pattern or trend that's happening? And so that's where I'm most interested in the intersection of crypto, because crypto feels like it's the thing that's changing everything else. There's certainly hard, the hardware component with the smartphones that are changing it, but underlying the smartphones the Samsung Pay and Apple Pay are still the same rails. So we're taking a new shape, but you know, it's mildly interesting. Like we have a digital credit card instead of a physical credit card, but it's still a credit card, still the same incentive structures. I'm, I'm always fascinated when we change an underlying uh, system because that changes the incentive and that changes the world. So do you see from your vantage point a, a massive shift happening or do you anticipate it to happen or I imagine it's going to happen in different parts of the world first, but how does crypto really like meaningfully change the world of, of payments that you're seeing? Um, so in, in terms of uh, as, a, as an institution and, and looking at this for, from a very narrow uh, point of view as, as effectively 
conducting treasury uh, operations. Uh, there's already a, a big adoption of, of various stablecoin providers out there and they're used on chain very successfully and uh, and operators like uh, uh, Circle, for example, process hundreds of millions of redemptions per, per week sometimes in according to their public uh, publicly shared information. Uh, so there's already a, an ecosystem with a lot of demand. They're able to, uh, of course, be a gateway, uh, specifically Circle and, and Tether, for example, between uh, uh, the digital asset space, the blockchain itself, and fiat world by providing institutions uh, and, and large clients such as family offices and other large financial entities uh, access to uh, vast amounts of, of uh, um, stable coins to fiat uh, on and off ramping uh, effectively. So the first way that I'm already seeing uh, the, the, the blockchain and crypto digital asset space affect traditional uh, finance is by the ability of various financial institutions to operate completely in stable coins um, on the various chains and redeem those for fiat uh, as effectively a challenger to SWIFT and, and other banking institutions that, that uh, are another uh, essentially linking the value chain and, and also get being paid fees, sometimes as a percentage of, of volume. So um, we are seeing a lot of providers already uh, uh, mandate the use of it. And, and one way to actually judge um, how the, the uh, enterprise uh, so demand for, for uh, these assets is to look at the adoption of, of things like uh, fireblocks and, and, and other uh, effectively, uh, treasury and and uh, um, asset storage management mechanisms that allow larger institutions to do this, and 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 uh, the ecosystem is is growing rapidly from from my point of view. I, I I'm not sure how retail payments and how that will, the the whole crypto space will is yet to to meaningfully impact the way we actually pay at uh, at a post terminal and and that uh, entire life cycle. But on the uh, larger institutional front, there already is uh, quite a bit of demand and activity on that front. And break me down a little bit. So you mentioned fire blocks and then institutional activity. What does that mean? Does that mean like a company is paying another company for services and they're settling on USDC? And then what are fire blocks? So uh, Firebox is a uh, is a company that that manages uh, uh, provides multi signature uh, access to digital assets on on chain and off chain. They have, well, I'm not going to make a, a full pitch for them, but it, they have a very interesting product that allows companies like ourselves to to uh, um, manage uh, digital assets regardless of the cryptocurrency in a, in a secure fashion and conduct uh, transactions. Uh, with other entities, so so that effectively, uh, if you think of, of Fireblocks as a as a clever online banking uh, for for blockchain mm -hmm. uh, based uh, um, uh, assets, so so that allows yeah. various large institutions to to uh, settle funds between themselves in in seconds instead of days and paying large fees. Uh, this could be uh, thought of as a way for, for let's say, a, a payment institution in Malaysia to settle with a European uh, client of theirs uh, for uh, selling a certain uh, good or service uh, uh, locally there. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Interesting. And so that's happening rapidly at this point. These large there's, organizations, there's even a which have a major, 
Yeah, major incentive, right? Yeah. Yes, yes. Uh, it's just that the, the cost of, of conducting these transactions, um, just the cost curve has gone so low that, that today, uh, wiring of a few hundred thousand uh, USD over SWIFT versus uh, transacting it uh, via a stable coin like USDC or, or Tether, uh, it's actually uh, quite a lot cheaper to do it. Uh, on the chain. And do you see, do you see a, uh, are we headed towards a world where there is a, just a, a decreasing influence from traditional banking and payment infrastructure and this new crypto technology starts to become like more mainstream? Or do you think there'll be a state, either the, the US or other Western states start to really fight that where they view it as like hey initially maybe it's usdc but maybe there's another stable coin that people move into bitcoin and the us dollar starts to decrease in relative power for international trade is that are we headed towards that as an inevitability do you think the us in particular since it's the global reserve currency do you think the us like institution as a, as a government starts to fight this in some way. I mean, they haven't, they've kind of dragged their feet up until this point in terms of like regulation, but they have not by any means like declared war on cryptocurrency. And I, I wonder, is that possible? Is that inevitable? Do you have a view on that? So it's a, it's an interesting question. So from a, a regulatory perspective, um, I, there's a lot of uh, things that are being said and a lot of activity on behalf of, of regulators in the US and they're also in every other large economy, uh, just because of these flows um, between crypto and fiat and, and the crypto ecosystem growing to to uh, surpass a trillion and then two trillion at some point. So it, it's uh, uh, it's definitely uh, regulators definitely starting to pay more attention. Um, I, I cannot speak to how uh, that will affect the or regulatory the regulatory frameworks that, that the various uh, uh, regulators are looking at. Uh, as our uh, my focus generally is uh, is just on sort of the, the regulated financial institutional side. And for now, uh, uh, we effectively uh, entities like us, uh, according to to regulations such as the FCA and and uh, other European regulators, they actually yep. uh, uh, force us to treat this as a as a normal treasury. So the USDC effectively is just a US dollar. And it's being treated as such. Um, so from that perspective, there, there's, there's no, uh, not a significant difference there. It's an asset. Mm. Um, I hope that that answers your question. Yeah. Well, I, I'm, I'm kind of more or less getting at like, are, are we headed? Do you think there's a one percent chance, ninety nine percent chance, or somewhere in between, of governments overtly like saying, "Hey, we're we're blocking." citizens use of cryptocurrency because they're going to say it's for safety right they're like of course it's always about safety but really it's about control and so there's a there's always a seesaw relationship between safety uh like privacy and safety like you can have incredible safety as provided by the government but then you have no privacy and so i i I wonder to what degree people, and I ask this question a lot just to get people's temperature on it. Like, is there an inevitable conflict of interest? There seems to be an obvious conflict of interest. As we move away from the US dollar and into crypto, the US dollar is less valuable. And the, you know, the, the US government cares about the US dollar's influence in world trade. So I don't know, I, I, I try to like mash this together and like, am I, is there something I'm missing? Do you see something happening internationally? Is there a larger macro sort of yeah. play? I, I see, I see what, where you're going with this. Well, it's a fairly open-ended question, but I'll say the following. In terms of um, just the larger uh, flows of USD, um, Euro and, and other currencies, 
uh, the crypto ecosystem is, is, is fairly small today and will mm -hmm. remain to, to be so and uh, maybe in the, in the next decade. Um, so I, I think it poses a threat to any national, uh, at least large economy national currency yet. Uh, but uh, I, I think that any single uh, country uh, creating laws and trying to especially enforce laws against uh, digital assets will actually cause uh, or, or any against any actually payment uh, uh, flow such as capital flight controls and others, which is a right. very popular dictatorship, uh, uh, you know, method. Uh, so once these capital flows are, are, are enforced, then uh, effectively the, the friction of using the crypto versus another payment method that they use today all of a sudden doesn't look very frictiony. Uh, so it, it looks so, it, I mean, it's it's a lot easier to, to do this with crypto than, than what I used to do before, because now I cannot transact, I cannot buy certain items, I cannot transact with another country and so on and so forth. So from that perspective, uh, uh, certainly, uh, you know, uh, politics in all kinds of places around the world could cause uh, uh, small pockets a very rapid adoption of, of digital assets, maybe ones that are to the local market and local digital currency, maybe. Uh, that, mm. that local providers run, but but I, I definitely see that happening, uh, uh, especially in, in the emerging markets. Yeah, yeah, it just seems like the U.S. has printed an exorbitant amount of money, and that that offsets. It really creates a. It really uh, it hurts people internationally much more. So you know, if the U.S. bank, you know, the Federal Reserve prints money and gives it to U.S. citizens, well, that that hurts everyone else outside of the u.s who's not receiving those payments it would be one thing if they like airdropped it to everyone equally that but there'd be no point to doing that they'd just be like you know exactly. here's some money so then it it at a, at a certain point it just it reaches this you know you print money to pay off the debts that you already have and then you sort of get into this like the flywheel kind of loses grip and then like hyperinflation starts to kick in in a meaningful way. And I, the US is, you know, this is the number one concern of the country. And it seems to be the number one most popular topic to not let this happen. But if and when it does, it seems to be a pattern throughout history. There is a, like you say, a capital flight, people move out of the currency, they may buy property like real estate, they may move into the equities market. But increasingly, so crypto is a fast and simple way to move out of the US dollar. And in particular, if you're holding your US dollar in stablecoin on chain, it's like, you know, 10 seconds later, you could have Bitcoin instead of US dollar. So I, and given that the back door is so open, you know. Yeah. Uh, awkwardly enough, it's a very tangible asset for a number of, uh, of uh, non-USD and, and not, I would say, non-Western uh, countries such in South America where uh, uh, effectively, buying a U.S. share might on, on from a, from a brokerage might not be as easy as, as it seems, but buying crypto might happen even locally from peer to peer, or even from, a, of course, regulated exchanges that, that you're able to. Yeah. So, so digital assets all of a sudden become something that more people understand, as awkwardly as it might sound, uh, than than they do traditional financial instruments that that you know pension funds have traditionally invested in. Mm. Are there other areas that so we talked a little bit about this uh, tension between governments and policy as the U.S. dollar it, it competes with in a more meaningful way alternatives in crypto? Uh, we talked about the evolution of the credit cards and the potential tension that they're going to have with uh, competing like digital currencies. Are there other areas that you think are um, especially poignant or especially interesting as we go into like 2022, three, four, five, six, the next, you know, five to 10 years that will be very topical or maybe underappreciated in the world of payments? 
that you're seeing? Uh, yeah, I, I definitely see a few trends that are uh, that are very, very interesting and, and uh, effectively will benefit uh, clients the most. And that is the uh, the way the entire ecosystem is, is effectively fighting to reduce the cost of uh, tra transferring and making payments. Mm -hmm. When a large amount of market share, especially in, in retail uh, uh, payments, is controlled by a duopoly, such as the Visa Mastercard duopoly and, and, and other schemes in, in all, all around the world, uh, when when such uh, things occur, there is uh, unnatural price discovery. Effectively, they're able to corner the market. And I think um, by just the virtue of, of how fragmented the market is all around the world and similar uh, uh, sort of calls and realizations on, on, on behalf of, of our Western uh, firms and, and digital technology companies here. Uh, I think this, was, this is something very, very interesting. Elon Musk is, is saying all kinds of things about Twitter going into payments, uh, potentially global payments. So we're yet to see, uh, uh, you know, there's also the, the story of, of Facebook's uh, uh, project in the space. So we're, we're yet to see who manages and how uh, to sort of implement uh, these kinds of functionalities uh, here, but in other places all around the world, I, I think that's that's already a, uh, a given just because they skipped uh, the whole process of, of dealing with credit cards, that entire technology cycle uh, of digital payments came with the mobile phone and, and at this point, uh, the card system didn't make much sense. So from, so from my you, perspective, I yeah. do say a, a sort of an arc, uh, a narrative arc of, of um, just removing all of these layers and frictions in, uh, in the uh, system. So it's almost to say that uh, the thing to look out for would be existing social networks, it uh, like I injecting payments into them. So like P Facebook did this with the Facebook Messenger. There's like a pay button. Apple Pay does this. You could pay other people with the cash. Then there's companies like Square who kind of pseudo did this because they had an existing network of merchants, and but then they had they launched the the Cash App, which is like. You know, they had to build that from the ground up, but they really kind of doubled down on the user experience. There seems to be maybe an opportunity like in Twitter where you have a large existing social network that you can then include payments into that as opposed to try to build it from the ground up, which makes sense to me. I mean, Twitter, there's probably not a lot of those, right? There's like Twitter, you know, maybe Reddit, you know, whatever social network is out there. Then another approach would be like government forced, you know, you can have, but, but that seems like... It's just not going to happen. I mean, CBDCs yeah, it, are a topic, but the, the government is, is uh, of course, uh, best spend its uh, effort uh, by by pulling instead of pushing uh, yeah. regulation. And there's a bunch of very very uh, clever folks uh, working on, on behalf of uh, the regulators. I mean, I, I I get to deal with them a lot uh, over the, the last few years, and uh, um, mm -hmm. uh, I, I can actually see the level of talent that works there, and the folks that are operating. And I think. Uh, it's short-sighted of us to to not consider the fact that some of the brightest folks work in these uh, uh, institutions and Is are also right? looking at the same data. Uh, we are in it, uh, for example, on, on the, the fact of the Federal Reserve, right? Some of the brightest economists of our generation are, are uh, sitting uh, in offices right now and trying to crunch the numbers and uh, innovating in in, uh, uh, in all kinds of ways for us to be able to better understand uh, this level of data to this level. Um, See, like, I, I'm so torn because I, I love that you're saying that. But when I look at around at the, in particular, U.S. politicians, but even, even many of the Western politicians, there seems to be such a consistently uh, shallow level of sophistication amongst the folks talking about particularly economic policies that... I don't know. I, I just, it doesn't give me a lot of hope or a lot of faith that there is much intellectual 
capacity happening underneath the hood. Uh, Alex, so I, I love this point. I find it really fascinating, which is that you're, you're saying you're interacting with a lot of people in government, I imagine the US government, that are sophisticated, nuanced, the best economists of our time, which is awesome to hear. That, that's, that's what I would have hoped you would have said. I hope it's genuinely true, and I hope they're having the ability to influence policy in a meaningful way, the smartest people. I, I somehow just, I don't see it ripple effect. I worry about the interaction politically because it seems like political leaders are just not nearly as either both honest and nuanced in sophistication in their sophistication of economic policies. Like it just kind of feels like broad strokes, you know, print a trillion dollars here, print a trillion dollars. There's no, there's no philosophical stance or maybe none that's articulated clearly about what the policy is. Like I think back to uh, John Maynard Keyes and Hayek and like the, the role at which government should be intervening in the private markets. And there was a lot of really great debate happening, but it, I don't see it. And, and I, I hope to God it's happening um, because it's just so important. You can't just assume the government could come in, print a trillion dollars and solve the problem. And deep down, we all know that, but like the, the, the answer is somewhere really nuanced and sophisticated. So yeah, yeah well, I, the, I guess the answer was to print between zero and three, uh, you know, and, and one trillion dollars, I guess, uh, somewhere in the middle. Um, but uh, I guess where, where all of us are sort of discounting what it means to be a politician and, uh, and, and mm. effectively uh, 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 to be dealing in statecraft in the day and age of uh, social media and uh, uh, the kind of, of talent that's attracting. And there is a great uh, a bunch of uh, very, very good science on, on effectively what it means and what the kind of people it takes to, to uh, effectively be able to polarize in their own ways in, in modern politics. Uh, so I guess that's, that's sort of, that's where my, your observation would be, would be uh, uh, stemming from. And I, I can't really talk about this uh, part very much as, as I, I have no expertise in, in political matters, especially in uh, the complex, already complex US political system as it is. Uh, but I will say the following. I, I, I think that, that the institutions such as the Federal Reserve and, uh, and, and local and, and of course some of the global banks, uh, some of the folks that, that work there are, 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 are very, very sophisticated uh, uh, operators, uh, I would say. I mean, uh, the, the level of, of, of knowledge, understanding and, and the sort of commitment it takes to, to analyze uh, this data uh, in, you know, let's say Federal Reserve of, of St. Louis, uh, it's just that uh, requires a, a, a people who are, uh, you know, would have a, an amazing career on, on Wall Street if, if that's what they wanted, right? So some mm. of the, the people working there are, are, are um, amazing at their craft. They're able to analyze and effectively innovate in how data is analyzed and understood. And I think that that's, that's really uh, what has uh, showed that the U.S. model to be more successful in, in, in many ways than, than the European model where each and every country sort of runs its own uh, uh, yardstick measurement apparatus and, mm. and they're not as effective as and not able to implement uh, such policies uh, as US ones. But, but uh, one thing to be cognizant of is the fact that such institutions attract uh, amazing people with different kinds of, of skill sets and, and commitments and, and some of them actually uh, really don't need to, to progress uh, from a career perspective if they come, for example, from a wealthier family. So they're uh, they, they don't uh, want to uh, to go into Wall Street and, and, and everything that comes with that work culture over there and instead focus soul. on 
Yeah, and instead of focus on, on, on effectively statecraft and policy, uh, I, I think that's a very interesting, uh, very cool focus and, uh, and uh, there's, there's some very amazing uh, innovation that happens. Yeah. Anything else you wanted to share? Uh, I know you, you spent a lot of time thinking about cybersecurity and crypto and payment networks, particularly abroad. Um, otherwise, I could ask you your favorite books and podcasts and things that have influenced you the most. Um, so I, on, on, on the cybersecurity side, I'd, I'd like to sort of merge this for, for um, with, with uh, crypto and digital assets. Uh, more broadly, I think that that's a really defining uh, issue and we can see this in, in the statistics and unless as an industry we figure out how to uh, collaborate together uh, to chase these these uh, the threat actors and, and be able to mount more meaningful um, um, countermeasures to them being able to to actually move this money into into real uh, excuse me to move this money into a the real financial system, uh, which which is happening by threat actors such as North Korea and and others all around the globe, um, who are able to to um, you know conduct this at, at scale. So I think that as an industry, uh, in both the payments and of course digital assets, uh, from a business to business or a B two B perspective, um, we just need to um, uh, get get our heads together collectively and figure out what this new platform and ability to transact allows us uh, in order to better. Uh, address the threats that we all face, um, so that there is a large disincentive of someone uh, to to go and, and perpetrate a large hack of an exchange or or any digital asset uh, uh, ecosystem or project uh, just because they they don't know that that the local or global law enforcement will, will come after them and, and seize those assets. So so I think that's that's a um, that's a major challenge that that the entire industry needs to uh, be more serious about. Mm. Um, as 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 far as podcasts, go ahead. Yeah, I was going to ask what what books or uh, or content pieces of content have influenced your your thinking the most in recent um, years. So, so I, I would say uh, Philip Tetlock's uh, Super Forecasters. That was a very very interesting book, hmm. um, and uh, it's just uh, uh, it's interesting how how uh, folks uh, who professionally work as, as forecasters and, and pre to predict certain events. Uh, what their success rate is, and uh, and and how this entire industry um, sort of works in in, in the scope of, uh, of finance, financial consulting, uh, financial managers, and so on and so forth. Um, another podcast I, I enjoy a lot is is, is Dobner's Free Economics and and the related series. I don't know if uh, if you've been listening to them, but they have amazing content, very thoughtful. Um, uh, and uh, and they're a cover of a variety of, of matters that, that I enjoy, of course, uh, Financial Times and, uh, and uh, Barry Riffle is actually a Bloomberg uh, reporter. Uh, he brings interesting business leaders to, to discuss various matters that, uh, that are very interesting and, and folks from, from various backgrounds also, uh, from literally from security to real estate to, to finance uh, and other things. Um, and yeah, that, that, that would be a, a, a few good ones to, uh, to, I guess, go on. Awesome. Well, thanks so much, Alex. Congrats on all your progress so far. And, uh, you know, it sounds like a really exciting area to be in. So hope to have you back on someday. And uh, thank, yeah, you. thank you. Thank for you. Your time, Looking man. forward. Yep. You too. Take care. Thank you for listening to Around the Coin. If you enjoyed the show today, consider giving us a quick review wherever you listen to podcasts, tweet about it or text it to a friend. We really appreciate all the support and growing that we can. If you have any guests you'd like us to bring on or feedback for us, don't hesitate to reach out. We would love to hear from you. 
Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner.